The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is New Yorker staff writer and CNN legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin, whose book The Oath, The Obama White House and the Supreme Court has just been published by Doubleday. Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming into the Slate studio to talk about it. Good to be with you. Now, I found this book fascinating as I did The Nine, your earlier book on the Supreme Court. Now, the title of the book, The Oath, comes, of course, from the strange botching of the presidential oath on January 21st, 2009. I, Barack Hussein Obama, I, do Barack, solemnly swear... I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear... that I will execute the office of president to the United States faithfully... that I will execute... The of, faithfully the pres, office of president of the, the United States... the office of president of the United States faithfully... And will to the best of my ability. You have some fresh reporting about how those things got messed up in the book. So tell us what happened and whether it really mattered. Well, it's it's such a strange story. This is one of the reasons I like being a journalist is that, you know, you get to watch news happen. Mm-hmm. But then the, one of the downsides of being a journalist is that the circus moves on very quickly and people don't follow up. And I decided to follow up with what the heck happened with this oath because no one had ever really done that. And I found out that at least some of the criticism of Chief Justice Roberts was highly unfair, that he had somehow not prepared or blown it off. In fact, as I learned, he rehearsed so many times that his wife said to him at one point, at this point, the dog thinks it's the president. It was not um, lack of preparation. It was really a case of a misplaced email that uh, Roberts and his chief aide had prepared a card explaining how he was going to divide the words and they forwarded that card to a secretary on the committee of the Congress that was supervising the inauguration. Well, that secretary either didn't read the attachment, didn't notice it, deleted it, but she never forwarded it to the Obama staff. So Obama didn't know how Roberts was dividing the words and on the occasion jumped in before Mm. Roberts was ready for him to jump in. And that most uncharacteristically threw Roberts off, which resulted in the botching that is so familiar to us. And they actually re-ran it, so to speak. The next day, yes. And, And much of the prologue of the oath is the story of how and why the redo w- yeah. was done. And it is both just a historical curiosity, but I also think it's a metaphor for the conflict between Roberts and Obama and also the changes in constitutional law that would prompt mm. a new administration to take the extra step of redoing the oath. I was very struck by the contrast between Chief Justice John Roberts and President Barack Obama. They have a surprising number of things in common, including the law school they attended, where they both did very well. But there are also things where they're very different. In a sense, the whole book is about the ways they differ. But you start by pointing out that even though Obama had famously run on the slogan, Hope and Change, 
in many ways, John Roberts is much more of an agent of change when it comes to the Constitution. Very much so. Um, the, the Republican Party and the conservative movement have had a serious agenda for change at the Supreme Court mm. for decades now, since Ronald Reagan uh, brought Edwin Meese with him to Washington in, in the 1980s. And that agenda is, is John Roberts' agenda. Uh, expand executive power, end racial preferences intended to assist African Americans, lower the barriers between church and state, reverse Roe versus Wade and allow states to, to ban abortion. Barack Obama's agenda is finger in the dike. Just mm -hmm. stop. Leave things alone. Mm -hmm. Don't make waves. And that difference between the two of them, change versus not change right. is really the theme of the oath and I think of what's going on at the Supreme Court now. Right. Now, it's obviously very common for the president to be an attorney, but Obama wasn't just an attorney. He was a constitutional law professor. And one thing that I hadn't really realized before reading your book was that there was quite a bit of press coverage of Obama when he became the first black president of the Harvard Law Review. And in fact, that was what helped him to get the boot contract for Dreams from My Father, which then led to much more attention and, and praise. And even after he was president of the Law Review, he didn't follow the usual route and become a Supreme Court clerk. And then again, later when he was a senator, at the time the only African-American in the Senate, he joined the Committee on Foreign Relations rather than the Judiciary Committee. It seems like there's this very strange attraction to the law, but then not following the usual path. Right. I think the key insight into Obama's character, at least in the, in the early stages of his life, is that as uh, the president of the Harvard Law Review, he could easily have clerked on the Supreme Court mm -hmm. as John Roberts, who was essentially number two on the Harvard Law Review during his tenure, did. He clerked mm -hmm. for then Associate Justice uh, William Rehnquist. But Obama, in short order, returned to Chicago, did not clerk, and in fact ran for the state senate not too much longer. And Obama believes that political change comes from politics, from elected officials, not from the courts. And, and I think that motivation, that interest, that understanding of how political change happens is something at really at his core and has dictated his relationship with the Supreme Court for quite a long time. Yeah. Obama had a relatively brief career in the Senate, but he got to vote on two Supreme Court justices' confirmation votes. And he voted against Roberts and Alito. Why did he vote the way he did? And, and is that something that the justices think about after they're on the court? Do they nurse grievances against the people who voted against them? Well, I think it, it varies by justice and it varies by senator. Uh, what, what's most interesting about Obama's votes on Roberts and Alito is how much he struggled with his vote on, for, on John Roberts. He liked John Roberts. Mm. He thought Roberts was a fair, intelligent judge. But Obama was talked out of voting for him really on political grounds. Mm -hmm. that hey, Democratic primary voters do not want to hear that you voted for George W. Bush's candidate for uh, chief justice. But what's interesting is that the day after he voted against Roberts, uh, Obama wrote a post for Daily Kos, the liberal blog, and said, you know, there's some Democratic senators who voted for Roberts. Don't hold it against them. I mm -hmm. understand why they did what they did. Um, Roberts, I think, is very wise in the way of politics, and, and I don't think he held it against Obama at all. Alito is somewhat different. Um, there is a real clear animosity between Samuel Alito and Barack Obama. It was reflected 
in Obama's vote. It was reflected in Alito's failure to attend the courtesy call that Biden and Obama paid at the Supreme Court before the inauguration. It was reflected in Obama's attempt, later successful, to overturn the Lilly Ledbetter decision, which was written by um, Samuel Alito, and it was most vividly expressed during the State of the Union in 2010 when Obama and and Alito had a face-off over uh, Citizens United. Right. Well, we'll get to both of those cases in a little minute. But in the book, you provide profiles of the justices and their various routes to the court. And I was very struck that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a legal career that at this point would almost certainly be considered too extreme for confirmation. And certainly it was very different from the two justices whose confirmations you describe in the book, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. Am I right about that? And and again, does that matter? Oh, I think it matters a lot. And I think, unfortunately, the Supreme Court confirmation process has become so tense and politicized that large numbers of highly qualified potential Mm -hmm. justices are now excluded. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was head of the American Civil Liberties Union's Women's Rights Project. She was a pioneer litigator. She had argued and won some of the most important women's rights cases before the Supreme Court. And she was confirmed in 1993 with 90 plus votes. Both her nomination and certainly that kind of confirmation are inconceivable today because of what the process has become like. Let's get to some of those cases. Like to me as an outsider, the court decision in Ledbetter v. Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company seemed outrageous. A woman, Lily Ledbetter, found out that after many years of employment that she had been paid significantly less than male colleagues at the same level, but because she didn't file a claim within 180 days of getting those smaller paychecks, she had no right to redress despite the fact that she didn't know about the differential. To me, that felt like a case where the law was being an ass in a way that was quite clear to normal people. And it kind of seemed like Justice Ginsburg thought the same. She did. And Ginsburg also illustrated considerable political savvy in how she decided to style her dissenting opinion in that Mm. case, because that case came down just as the Democrats had retaken control of the House and Senate were, and were suddenly in a position to have their own lit- legislative agenda. And she very explicitly said to Congress, you can fix this. You can stop this injustice if you amend Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And Nancy Pelosi, the new, the new House Speaker at the time, embraced Lily Ledbetter's cause and it turned out to be – the first piece of legislation that Barack Obama signed as president. And there's really just a very moving scene, I think, in the oath as uh, Barack Obama and Lily Ledbetter, this woman who was a middle manager with a Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, a very obscure person Mm. who pursued her case for years and then wound up having her name on a very significant piece of legislation. That was an example of the system working Mm. in a really remarkable way. But it is worth remembering that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was not present in the White House that day, probably had more to do with that day happening than anyone else. That's a great point. Let's pause for a moment to give away some books. 
But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. The Oath is available unabridged on Audible, so if you want to hear Robertson Dean, who is a very prolific audiobook narrator read the book aloud to you in all its 12 hour 17 minute glory you can do so as part of our great offer to get your 30 day free trial which will allow you to download the oath or one of the other books available on audible go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword if you use that url the afterword will get credit audiblepodcast.com slash afterward. Now, Doubleday has very kindly given us four copies of The Oath to give away to listeners, and Jeffrey has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words Oath Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterward at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, November 2nd, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address, and if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. I'm talking with Jeffrey Tubin, author of the new book, The Oath, The Obama White House and the Supreme Court. Another big decision of this court. You write that the decision in District of Columbia v. Heller, which is a 2008 gun rights case, highlights the way that Justice Antonin Scalia's philosophy of originalism and seeing the Constitution as a living thing moved into the mainstream. What is this originalism business and why was that such a sea change? Well, originalism is the mode of interpretation that says Supreme Court justices should interpret the Constitution and understand its words as the framers originally understood it. And it is a narrow conception of of what the words mean. I mean, the classic originalist point is that there is no such thing as a right to privacy in the Constitution, so there are no abortion rights protected is a uh, originalist idea. Gun control uh, was an issue about the Second Amendment, which is a famously ungrammatical sentence in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, which says that there are going to be well-regulated militias, state militias, and that there is a right to keep and bear arms. For decades, the court had interpreted the Second Amendment to mean that only state militias had the right to keep and bear arms. But under Justice Scalia's leadership, his version of originalism said that the right to keep and bear arms belonged to individuals, not to state militias, Mm -hmm. and thus governments could not take handguns away from individuals because there was an individual right. It was a tremendous victory for anti-gun control forces. So this originalism and, and figuring out what the framers meant, what was in their hearts, does this turn the justices into historians? I mean, Well, it certainly does call on them to act a- as historians, and there are many problems with it as a right. result because, for example, you know, many of the framers thought different things about uh, what the Constitution meant at the time. Several of them said they didn't think their intent should matter at all. And most importantly, perhaps, 
It's very hard to apply the thought processes of 18th century men, and they were all men and all white, to modern problems. And that came up in an oral argument in a very, I thought, entertaining and revealing way. There was a case before the court about the regulation of video games in California. And Justice Scalia was asking some questions. And finally, Justice Alito followed up and he said, well, what I think Justice Scalia is asking is, what did James Madison think about video games? Did he enjoy them? <laughs> and um, it was really a zinger at Scalia because, you know, how can you possibly think the framers had anything to say about video games? And certainly that is true about uh, wiretapping and about uh, searches and seizures of cars and drone strikes uh, overseas. The world is a very different place. And if you were going to pin your hopes on determining what the framers thought in any given case, it can be very difficult. Indeed. I was struck by something that you wrote about the stakes in the case that became known as Citizens United. You say, at its heart, Citizens United was a case about Republicans versus Democrats. And you also say that Chief Justice Roberts decided to help the Republican Party. What do you mean, and, and we all know now what this case has wrought, but what, what was going on there? Well, Citizens United was a great constitutional epic in the Supreme Court. There were so many moving parts to the mm -hmm. case. So many justices had turning points in their lives because, because of that case. But you know, at its core, Citizens United is about deregulating American campaigns, allowing people and companies with a lot of money to give more money. Mm -hmm. That's what the case is about. And if you deregulate American campaigns, you help Republicans period. I mean, that is the effect of the, the Citizens United decision and that whole movement towards deregulating campaigns. No, that's because the Republican Party is the party that attracts the big money. Correct. Exactly. It's very difficult to determine the intent of Supreme Court justices when they rule in any given way. And I don't specifically say that any of the conservative justices, the five in the majority in Citizens United, did it because mm. they wanted to help the Republican Party. But we should all be clear that they did help the Republican Party, uh, regardless of what they intended. Right. I was amazed to read that Justice John Paul Stevens' last day on the court was also the morning after Justice Ginsburg's husband, Marty, had died, and she still went to work, read an opinion in a clear voice, though apparently Justice Scalia wept during the announcement of, of Marty's death. Okay, yeah, they get three months off in the summer, but there is something astonishing about the justices' work ethic, isn't there? Especially since some of them are quite advanced in years. There are. There are now four justices in their 70s. Uh, Ruth Ginsburg is now 79. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, one of the things I have always tried to do in, in the nine first and now in the oath is to portray the court as what it is, an institution made up of human beings mm -hmm. who, who, who have complicated lives. And uh, Ruth Ginsburg and Marty Ginsburg had one of the great marriages I have ever heard about. They were very different. Uh, Ruth Ginsburg is rather shy and, and, and retiring. Marty Ginsburg was loud and funny <laughs> and a great chef and a great entertainer. And his death was, of course, uh, deeply traumatizing to mm -hmm. his wife. But it, I think it speaks to Justice Ginsburg's sense of duty that – 
he died on a Sunday, but she was at work on on Monday. Mm. You know that, that it's, it speaks to her level of dedication to to her work. Absolutely. So when Elena Kagan was appointed to the court, she became the third Princetonite and the fourth justice from one of the New York City boroughs. There's only one Protestant on the court right now, so certainly there's more. No, no more Protestants. Zero. No. John Paul Stevens left. Oh. And uh, and and Elena Kagan replaced him. Right. So it's six Catholics and three Jews. So okay. So there's. Some religious diversity, but it's not exactly representative of the United States. And we now have three women, one of whom is from a very working class family and background. But in some ways, it's still, even after kind of repeating those somewhat contradictory little factoids, it still seems like they come from similar backgrounds. And is that a problem? I think it's a problem. Um, they, They all come from Harvard or Yale Law School. Um, They all come out of academia. Breyer, Scalia, Kagan, Ginsburg were all law professors of of one kind or another. Mm. Um, All were federal appeals court judges except for Kagan. You know, the court that decided Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, uh, not one of the judges had ever been a judge before full time. They had really diverse backgrounds, including in politics. Mm. Uh, Earl Warren was governor of California. Hugo Black was a senator. William Douglas was head of the SEC. These were people who were very engaged in the politics of the mm-hmm. day. I think one of the um, consequences of having so many law professors on the court is they tend to deal with the court in a matter of abstractions, mm-hmm. like money is speech and, mm-hmm. and corporations are people. Justice O'Connor, for example, who was a politician, mm-hmm. who had been an Arizona state senator, um, really was much more in tune with what the real world of, say, raising money for campaigns was like. Right. Now, Justice Thomas famously hasn't asked a question in oral argument for more than six years, but you say that he has been influential in introducing new ideas to his colleagues. Can you give us an example of that? He has been enormously influential in bringing ideas that seemed so far right-wing that they were seen as almost crazy. And they have come very much into the mainstream and in some cases um, have actually commanded a majority. Gun control, his view of the Second Amendment was essentially adopted by Justice Scalia uh, years later. His views about free speech and corporations was part of the basis for Citizens United. And his view of the Commerce Clause was nearly successful in undoing the Obamacare law um, earlier this year. And so let's talk about that. After the passage of President Obama's health care legislation, the Tea Party blossomed, and their version of originalism was even more extreme than Justice Scalia's. And despite the court's turn to the right, which you've been describing, and toward originalism, Tea Party supporters spent a lot of time and energy denouncing the court, which must have been strange for them. Well, I mean, they, they were denouncing certain decisions. I don't think the Tea Party had any problem with Justice Thomas or Justice <laughs> Scalia. You know, one, one of the things that I think liberals don't do enough is recognize the power of ideas mm-hmm. in the conservative movement. And, you know, you can quarrel with how Tea Party conservatives interpret the Constitution, but they do, and they take it seriously, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they um, have really invested in a worldview about the the Constitution, which liberals have have somewhat neglected in in recent years. And and I think that has had a real consequence that 
conservatives are winning the public war of ideas right. about the Constitution. So again, this last case that you explore in the book is officially called National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius. And it's the court's consideration of Obamacare. And given that much of the argument focused on the constitutionally of the government mandate, it was good to be reminded, as you did in your book, that the mandate essentially came from the insurance companies. You write, Obama recognized that the insurance industry would not cooperate in the reform process unless there was a mandate and a healthcare mandate had existed before, had never previously been considered controversial. Again, a sign of the change on the court. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really an, an extraordinary story, the story of how uh, the individual mandate, the requirement that individuals buy insurance went from being a conservative idea, mm-hmm. came out of the Heritage Foundation, endorsed by Newt Gingrich, largely as an alternative to Bill Clinton's health care plan, how that evolved into an Obama proposal that the Republican Party as a whole denounced as unconstitutional and nearly was overturned um, in the Obamacare decision last June. And in that decision and in that consideration, the the justices devoted six hours to the arguments about the health care reforms, which you cover in, in, in very fascinating detail. But the decision was based on, again, something that seems to me an outsider to be pretty abstruse principles. And Justice Roberts famously changed his point of view between the initial vote of the justices and the final decision. I know it's a big case, but can you kind of talk us through it and what went on during their deliberations? Well, you know, just to illustrate how unusual this was, Chief Justice Roberts had never in his tenure as Chief Justice sided with the four liberals in a, in a five mm. to four case. There had never been a split of the court in that way. And I, and I think Roberts um, sees himself as the custodian of the court's public reputation. He mm. is the embodiment of the court and he does not like the idea of the court as a partisan institution. Uh, he, th- this case was in the public mind, I think, uh, the third in a trilogy, Bush v. Gore 2000, Citizens United 2010, and the Obamacare case in 2012 looked to be a third case where the five Republican justices were going to thwart the Democrats in, a, in another high-profile case. And Roberts looked for a way out, and he found this argument that had not gotten a lot of attention, that, that he embraced really alone, mm-hmm. that the individual mandate was a tax permissible under Article One of the Constitution. Because the legislature has the power to pass taxes. Pass taxes, right. It was, in my mind, a thin justification, but um, certainly the correct result. And it did succeed in taking the court off the agenda in this political year. And I think made Roberts bulletproof uh, for accusations of political partisanship probably for decades. Right. Now, I know that in your book, you would never do anything as crass as this, but I can ask you, can you just kind of give an evaluation as if you were on a football show, you know, assessing the the quality of the coach of the uh, Green Bay Packers? How has Justice Roberts done as as head of the Supreme Court? Has he has he performed well? Oh, he's 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 brilliant. He is he is a fantastic spokesman for what he believes in. He is very conservative. So you you can't separate the quality of his work as a craftsman mm. from the political views underlying it. And and I certainly don't agree with all of his political views, 
But in terms of his skill at the craft of being a judge, particularly his writing ability, I think he's in the very top rank of uh, justices on that court. Now, you conclude that the Republicans care a lot more about the courts and legal issues than Democrats do. Is that a problem for the Democratic Party? And is there any indication that uh, that, that might change? I don't see any indication that it's changing. Uh, Barack Obama is a paradoxical figure. He is someone who is very knowledgeable about the court, mm-hmm. but he is not devoted much political capital to it. He has not... Uh, even nominated all the lower court judges that he could. And the ones he did nominate have been obstructed on a unprecedented scale by Republicans who care about this. But Obama has not really fought back much. If he's reelected, I don't anticipate a major change. Perhaps he'll be somewhat more aggressive. But, you know, as, as I said earlier, he's someone who thinks change comes from the elected officials, not from judges. And his neglect, I think, is understandable as a, as a reflection of that. That was Jeffrey Tubin, whose new book, The Oath, The Obama White House and the Supreme Court, is available in bookstores now. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's fascinating. Thank you. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm Jim Thomas. Mm-hmm.